Good morning, Cornerstone. Before I jump into my message today, I wanted to make a few comments about some of the events that we all observed this week in our country. As a leadership team here at Cornerstone, we are saddened and disturbed by the continued <clears throat> division and fighting and violence that we see taking place in our country. It's uh, alarming and upsetting that there's, um, over the course of this entire year, there's been an increase in the number of people that think violence is the way for their, their message to be heard, and, and we saw that again this week, and, um, and we're not for it. But I say all that to say this. What we are for here at Cornerstone is promoting the life of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't just promote love and kindness, but he was the ultimate peacemaker. And he calls us to go uh, further than just being peaceful, but to actually be those that build peace. In fact, he said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The ministry of reconciliation is what God has put in us as the antidote for the division in this world. And so what we're committed to here at Cornerstone as a vision for the future, but even as a way of responding to times like the, one, the ones that we're in right now is to equip one another and promote peacemaking. And so uh, we wanna help you and all of us deal with the hostility and the anger that's in our heart. We wanna respond in the way of Jesus in a way that shines a light on the gospel by be, being people who promote reconciliation and peacemaking. So saying all that, um, just want you to know that we too uh, get disturbed by the same things that bother you, but we are very, very grateful that God has given us a vision in the way that we're meant to respond to these divisive times. And so I'd like to give us just a chance to pray. I wanna pray for our nation, um, and let's do that together. Father, we come to you today with just a simple prayer. We pray for healing. We pray that um, the transformation, the forgiveness, the reconciliation that comes through the gospel might increase. We pray for a great renewal of your spirit in our country. We pray that hearts would turn towards you in repentance, and we pray that things would change. And lastly, Father, I pray that you would use people like us and churches like ours to promote the antidote for division and hate in this world, which is reconciliation. Turn us into peacemakers. Keep us peacemaking, and use us, Lord, in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you for that. Um, I wanna go into the message now. Several years ago, we taught here at Cornerstone one of my very favorite messages in 19 years of ministry here. It was called Metamorphosis. And it was a series all about growth and change. And we were answering questions, can people change and how people change? And why is it hard for us to actually change our habits and our character and our behavior? And during the series, what we did is we, we borrowed uh, our, our topics from the recovery world and the 12 steps, all of which come right out of the gospel. And so it was really fun to kind of riff on something that's been used for, uh, for many years in the recovery world and, and to teach how this actually helps us today make changes in our life. Well, during that series, a friend of mine who is a alcoholic and has been a part of the AA community for many years and has actually led meetings for many years, invited me to come as a guest to one of the local AA meetings. And what I experienced that day is still a shock and a surprise to me. I was just expecting a normal meeting, but what I experienced, I can describe as miraculous. It was almost as if heaven opened up and we had an experience of heaven. I'll say it this way. In the 19 years that I've been at Cornerstone, there's only been a few times in my life where I have witnessed with my own eyes that I've been in the mom a moment, an experience, where the experience matched the potential that's described in Scripture, 
In other words, heaven broke through, and it's not like there was just a little bit of it. It seemed like the whole room was full of it. So I show up at this AA meeting, and um, later on, I was able to, to kind of notice all of these things, but the differences between people, and there were many, they were all left at the door. Pride was left at the door. Uh, hiding was left at the door. People's personal accomplishments or failures were irrelevant, and they were left at the door. There were no experts. There was no power play. You just had a group of adults with a shared solidarity around life, needing the support of one another, and showing up willing to give grace to each other. Sitting there and listening to people confess openly about their formerly private struggles, one after another was miraculous. It was powerful. And to watch new people who were there for the very first time jump in and participate was amazing. I mean, the openness that occurred in that AA meeting is something that we tried to build here at Cornerstone. And it takes years for us to create the safety that they created, seems almost in a moment. Sitting there and listening to all these people confess and then share grace, it was, it was just powerful. People had courage to share where they were at. And I can tell you this, that that ordinary room, I can still remember, it's just white walls, uh, folding tables, folding chairs, around the, uh, the, the folding chairs around the folding tables, some posters on the wall. It's just an ordinary room, but that room became a sanctuary that day. It became a home of grace and mercy. And all that was happening is you have people exchanging two different things. You have confession taking place, and that confession is being greeted with grace and love and mercy from other people. It was amazing. I learned something that day that I want to always be a part of our community here, and that is the power of a confessing community. And so we're going to get to that in a moment as we answer a really important question today around the theme of flourishing. And so to go back, last week I started a new series here at Cornerstone on the book of 1 John called A Faith That Flourishes. And we're after life. We're after the things that God uses to bring life um, into our everyday to help us to flourish in the midst of struggles. And so last week we looked at how generous God is and how God shares the word of life with us in three different ways and that he's always doing these things. Well, today the, the path of flourishing is a little bit of a surprise to many of us. At least it is to me. To actually say to someone, if you want your life to flourish, you need a life of confession. That is something that is not intuitive. It's not a part of, uh, of the way that we grow up. In fact, what we're told is to be, present ourselves in a very put together way to hide our weaknesses. But it's actually in the midst of our weaknesses that we are made strong. It's in the midst of confession of struggle that God allows our life and our faith to flourish. And so let's go to the passage and I want to answer the question today, what does it mean to walk in the light as it relates to confession and a few other subjects? So 1 John chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 5 today, just right where we left off last week. This is what it says. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim to have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you may not sin, but if anybody does sin... 
we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. So here, John, the disciple that had been with Jesus, is actually taking the very words of Jesus and he's turning it into actual practical thinking or teaching for us. This is how we're meant to practically live out our faith. And he's answering this question, what does it mean to live in fellowship in the light with Jesus? So he's probably thinking back to what he referenced earlier in his life in John chapter 8, where Jesus said this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I can imagine John wondering what that meant for years, but now John is this old, wise teacher that's trying to help this young church connect to life, and he's trying to help people understand what it means to walk in the light of life. So, before I begin to answer the question, what does it mean to walk in the light, we need to understand the context. The context is a struggle. The context is a sickness. The context is a war that all of us always find ourselves in. And that context, that war, that sickness is what we call sin. So I want to talk about sin for a moment, but we're going to move on and talk about what it means to walk in the light. But we need to understand and have a personal understanding of our own struggle with sin so that we can actually walk in the light. So let me say a few things about sin before we start. First of all, we don't like talking about it. And we don't like hearing about it. And as a result, we rarely take seriously or talk seriously about sin. And one of the reasons we do that is we don't want to guilt trip people. I don't want to guilt trip anyone in this room right now. I know the heart of John in the passage, if you continue reading in the letter, is to not beat anybody up. John is coming from the same place that I am today. And that is uh, the message of Jesus is one that makes you smile, it lifts your head, it gives you joy, it gives you courage. It doesn't beat you up. But we have a misconception that talking about sin is something that's meant to beat us up. But in fact, learning to deal with sin, learning to move through sin, learning to walk in the light amongst a setting of sin is a necessary step to a life and a faith of flourishing. There's no going around it. And so sometimes we have to deal with the difficult things to get to the really good things, and this is what John is doing. That's why I want to talk about it. I heard Tim Keller this week, as I was studying, say this. We have a culture full of people who claim to be innocent, yet live with a feeling of guilt. Isn't that true? In other words, we have a, a lot of people, I'll include myself, who we spend an enormous amount of our energy trying to cover up justify, explain away our own weaknesses. And if you go even further, because weakness isn't necessarily the same as sin, but we have people like myself that cover up and spend a tremendous amount of energy justifying and hiding our sin. A culture of people who claim to be innocent yet feel guilty. We wonder... What would it be like if people really knew me? We wonder if there ever is a relationship safe enough to to expose everything that's going on in our life, all that we think, all that we do. We wonder this all the time. But we come with a false message. How many times in the past decade have you heard in a movie or someone say, maybe say to you or you've said to someone else that there's nothing wrong with you? Now, I know a lot of times the heart behind that is trying to help people that beat themselves up understand, hey, you're beating yourself up for something that you shouldn't. 
But it really isn't true that there's nothing wrong with us. We have a tremendous amount of things that's wrong with us. That's what makes the gospel so amazing and beautiful. We are accepted in spite of our sin. We are loved even while we were offending him, ascending against him, we've been loved by God. See, the truth is that we have a complicated relationship with sin and guilt. There's many people right now who should feel guilty for certain things that they're doing that don't at all, and there are many of you who feel guilty for things that you shouldn't. This is a huge theme in pastoral counseling today. People who just beat themselves up, self-judgment, self-hate, things that, that you shouldn't be carrying. And, and usually this comes from your childhood where you're told that it, you, it's not just that you make wrong choices or do things that are wrong, but you're wrong. You're bad. And so your whole life is a justification of who you are. It's a great big apology to people. John is not talking about that. But he is saying sin needs to be taken seriously. And so to help us understand, I actually want to do something we do here at Cornerstone from time to time. I want to use the ancient Hebrew words that are full of meaning. And I want to use three Hebrew words that are used to describe sin to take us deeper and deeper in understanding the context of walking in the light and what it means. Okay, so I'm going to take you through these three words. The first Hebrew, wor Hebrew word that's used for sin in the scriptures is a word called hatah. More often than not in your Bible, it just gets translated to the word sin. And this is the concept that many of you are familiar with, the concept of missing the mark. And so often in, in churches like ours, the illustration of, of an archer pulling back an arrow and shooting towards the target and missing that target is described as sin. It's just being off of that perfect spot. It's off the mark. I prefer with the word hatah to use this image, that it means to leave the path. It means to get off course. It means missing the path of life or leaving the path of life. And really what that means, it's a relational thing because think of Jesus. We used this last week. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We talked about Jesus being the truth last week, the word. He is also the way. And so sin means to move away from the way of Jesus or to move off the path with him. Now, what Hatah is, uh, says, it contains different meanings, and there's, there's a path that we're meant to walk, but it also means that there is a destination for us. The destination is flourishing. The destination is joy. The destination is love and intimacy and purpose. That is the destination. And so what happens when we leave the path, we hurt ourselves. We end up in a ditch of despair and destruction, Now, what's interesting about the word hatah and missing the mark is that when we choose to miss the mark, we are leaving a path that was built and has been put out in front of us to help us experience that flourishing. But I'll say it this way. When we leave the path, we no longer honor the design of our heart. See, the path is congruent with the way God made you and what you want and the core longings that we have inside, and, and, and the path to flourishing. And so when we leave the path, this is why sin is so destructive. We dishonor the humanity, but also the image of God placed inside of us. We leave the design that God has placed inside of you. And when you stay off course, it's rough. There are natural consequences. There are spiritual consequences to sin. So here's an example of leaving the course, the path of Jesus. It's a simple one. If you are a deceitful person and you live a deceitful life, you lie, you deceive, you spend the truth, 
not only will people stop trusting you, but people will end relationships with you because of your deceit. That's the natural consequence. But what that will also do is you will end up in a ditch and you will feel apart and far away from Jesus. You will feel that way. Now the thing about Hata is that we all do it. All the time. We go our own way and that is why it is absolutely necessary, not just that we have a savior that forgives us, but we have an active present God in our life who's guiding us and correcting us and helping us and that's the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so Hata. The second word that's used to describe sin is different. It's the word pesha. And this is the word that's usually translated in your Bibles to transgression. Um, And a transgression is really about rebellion. It's about rebelling against authority, but ultimately it's about rebelling against a relationship of love. And so you can say when we sin that we rebel against God's laws. That should be an authority in our life. But really behind that, and what's more significant about this type of sin, is that we are rebelling against God himself. We're rebelling against God himself, and we're also rebelling against ourselves. Because we were made in the image of God, and we were made to be like him. So our rebellion against God is also a rebellion against ourselves. So for example, we were made to be image bearers. That path we talked about a moment ago, it helps us live as image bearers. But when we choose to rebel against God, we rebel against ourselves and we act less human. I like this definition of sin. Sin is the failure of worship or the failure to worship the right person or the right thing. Sin is about putting something or someone else, usually it's ourselves, in the prime place of authority and love and affection in our lives. It's a failure of worship. So it's rebellion against God. It's a rebellion against ourselves, so we rebel against the image-bearing part of us. But you know what else happens as we rebel against God? We rebel against the second calling that's been placed in our life, and that is to be like Jesus. So the first calling is to be an image-bearer of God. The second calling is to be like Jesus who said to love your neighbor and to love your enemy. And so often sin is all about breaking this relationship and this calling of love that exists in the world. And so when we choose to not love one another, not only are we rebelling against God and ourselves, but we are rebelling against others. And so there's the image of the path, there's the image of rebellion, both those help us get a concept of sin, but I wanna give you one more concept. And this is the Hebrew word avon. And most often, your Bible translates Yvonne to say inequity. So Isaiah 53 verse 5 is a place where this appears. Speaking of Jesus, he was pierced for our transgressions, the word we just looked at, and he was crushed for our iniquities. This word comes from the root word that describes something that is crooked or twisted or demented. Yvonne is not so much about leaving the path, It's not so much about rebellion. It is about the guilt and depravity and corruption of our heart. Yes, it's true. Every person that is living has ever lived as an image bearer of God. There is the seeds of the divine placed inside of us. But what sin does is it tarnishes that image. And this is the deeper meaning of sin. Sin is a full corruption of who we are. 
And you really never move out of just this continued struggle with sin until there is a transformation of that inner life. And so as an example, many of you over the years have heard me talk about the first three years of, of Elise and I's marriage. It was really crappy. It was horrible. We went to two years of marriage counseling because it was so bad. Uh, during many of those months of counseling, it felt like things were getting worse. It felt hopeless. We, we went through all of those feelings that many people still f- feel today. And, um, it, but looking back, we know that it was an incredibly transformational time in our life, something we're grateful for today. And not just because our marriage was saved and healed and reborn, but because each one of us changed as people. We changed as individuals. And one of the things that occurred to me is I began to get a deeper understanding of sin during this time, my own sin. So I would hear Elise say things like, Brian, the way that you're critical to me and about me, it's hurting me. And it was hurting her heart. And it was making her bitter. And it was driving us apart. And so I would hear that and I'd say, all right, I need to stop doing that. And so for a time, I would stop being critical and I would bite my tongue. And I would, uh, my motivation really at the time was, I mean, some of it was loving. I didn't want Elise to feel bad, but a lot of the motivation was I didn't want to deal with the negative consequences of this. I didn't want a divorce. It was inconvenient to continue to fight all the time. And so I would stop saying negative things, but there was never really a change of my heart. That only occurred when God began to take me into this deeper place and say, what is the root of this? What is the root of this anger? What is the root of this, this control, this, um, this harshness, this critic that's inside of you? That all of that's now being pushed on your wife. What is the source of all of those things? So what needed to happen is I needed God to take me all the way to the root of that dysfunctional behavior to change. I began to see sin as a corruption of my heart that needed healed, not just as bad behavior. So, whether it's an alcoholic moving through the 12 steps and doing the introspective work to see where all that dysfunction comes from or that need for alcohol comes from, or it's you spending time in counseling trying to get to the root of things. By the way, if the majority of your time spent in counseling is there to... to, blame other people for your problems, it's probably not worth your time. We get to control what we control. And there is enough in our own life that God needs to transform. And so that should be the the primary work that's done in counseling is trying to reflect on the lies and the wounds that we carry inside that's causing us to act out in certain ways. See, it's what I love also about the program we have here at Cornerstone called Healing Care. They use something called the journey of descent. And so they move past our sin and dysfunctional behaviors and they move through our emotions and they get all the way down to the lies we believe, but under that is the wounds that we carry. See, what's true is the sin of others hurts us and that pain, that wound, becomes the source of our own sin. And we continue to hurt others. And so that's why understanding sin as a corruption of our heart is so helpful. Now, here's what is so neat. Sin is powerful. Sin is enticing. Sin is so powerful that it can get in and can distort your heart. We even become dependent on some of these dysfunctional behaviors. But here's what's beautiful about Jesus. When he died and rose again, he broke sin's dominion over your life and my life. Of course, the influence is still there. Of course, the temptation is still there. But we are no longer slaves to it. The rules have changed. It no longer wins every battle. 
We've been set free from that to live different. So, sin is this great big problem. And John is putting walking in the light in the context of sin. And so here's the question. Does walking in the light meaning not sinning? And I'm gonna show you here in a moment that it means absolutely not. Absolutely not is the answer to that question. Never in the scriptures are we told to not sin. Actually, we're told not to sin, but never in the scriptures, I should say, are we told that we won't sin, at least on this side of heaven. So walking in the light has more to do with the way we deal with our sin and live with this struggle than not sinning at all. So let me show you a few places of what it means to walk in the light, and I'll make this point. So first, walking in the light means to, means walking, uh, walking in the light means walking in a life of love. So we have the luxury here, we're just looking at one passage, but we have the luxury of using the entire letter to understand what John is saying here. So if you jump forward one chapter, so we're gonna jump forward just for a moment, to chapter two, verse nine, and we're gonna look at the theme of love, okay? And I'm just gonna say a few things about love, but I want you to see that walking in love is what it means to walk in the light, or at least one of the things it means to walk in the light. And then we're gonna spend a lot of time, the rest of this series, talking about love. But look what John says. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Hmm. So what is the darkness? The darkness here is hate. It's bitterness. It's unforgiveness. It's contempt for other people. Love for one another, your family, the family of God, your neighbor, even your enemy are actions consistent with fellowship with Jesus. These are actions that place you in the light. And what we see here is that when we live this way, when you live loving, you actually see more. You know more of the truth. You're better able to navigate the uncertainty of life and all the decisions that are occurring in front of you. Anger and hate makes it so that we can't see and we don't know where we're going. It's really hard to make decisions if you walk around hating people all the time. It's just what it means. Love opens our eyes. It allows us to see. So listen to this. I just want to make sure you get it. Love is more an indicator of light and living in fellowship with Jesus than perfection is. So I'm going to say it again. Love is more an indicator of light and living in fellowship with Jesus than perfection is. than being sinless, because that's not possible. That's not what John's getting at here. In fact, when we love even our enemies, guess what happens? Joy and peace and purpose and contentment, all of those things increase. Love begets more blessing. Love begets love, begets joy, peace, flourishing, all of those things. Walking in the light leads to flourishing. In contrast, living under the standard of perfection, never making a mistake, you know what that does? It crushes us. We're never meant to hold up under those standards. That's why Jesus was sent. We are increasingly joyless when we live under the, perfe- or the standard of perfection. We're increasingly hopeless, and anxiety and hate only increase. Just think of yourself, the, the amount of anxiety and fear you live with because you're just trying to get everything right. See, the message of walking in the light is actually liberating from that. Walking in the light means walking in a life of love. Okay, so love. 
talk about more of that in the weeks to come. I'm gonna spend the rest of the time talking about confession because that's what John is focusing on here. The last part of chapter one. Walking in the light means walking in a life of confession or walking in confession. Verse eight said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So for people wanting to experience fellowship with Jesus or walking in the light, confession becomes a a regular part of their day. It's a part of their everyday. It's the spiritual equivalent of exhaling. You know, you can't just breathe by inhaling. You also have to exhale. Confession is the equivalent to that. We receive grace and we confess our struggles, our sin. I also want you to notice that walking in the dark and sin here are not one and the same. John's making the point, walking in the dark has more to do with a posture and an attitude that we often have that has us hiding and denying and explaining away that rebellion, that leaving the path, that corruption in our heart, that sin. They're not one and the same here, they're similar. But the darkness that John is trying to get us to move from is the denial of what's actually happening. It's the hiding Confession is an incredible gift. It's a path to flourishing. Here's a couple reasons why. First, it breaks the power that sin has over us. So sin is powerful, but sin that is kept secret and hidden is more powerful. And so when we confess, we break that power. So that, that idea that Jesus broke sin's dominion over us, confession allows us to connect to that, what Jesus has given us. So it's liberating. It's similar to forgiveness. Forgiveness releases you from the power of bitterness and hate. So confession relieves our conscience, and that needs to happen. It removes the heaviness of the things that we've done. And that's an incredible gift. And so confession becomes just a gift for us that way. But the ultimate gift of confession is that it changes us. It opens us up to renewal. You know, we say here at Cornerstone that repentance is the front door to renewal or revival. Well, confession is part of repentance. Before a person can ever turn and go in a different direction, they have to confess to themselves and God that they're going the wrong way. So they go the same. Confession is the path to renewal. We should not be afraid to admit what's true. You know, I think this is one of the reasons that I love sports. So you hear that about me all the time. I share what I love. I love competing But one of the things I really love about sports is just the way people grow. You know, I'm coaching wrestling right now. And a common thing that occurs in every practice every day is that I will spend the majority of the practice helping our wrestlers see the mistakes they're making, their weak areas, areas to grow on. I point all these things out. And what's so neat about athletics is that they can hear that. It's very different than the way we get trained to manage people in the business world or the leadership world. We're told that before you ever give someone a negative piece of uh, of feedback, you have to give them three pieces of positive feedback. There's a name for that. It's a crap sandwich, or some people say it a different way, right? What I love about sports is none of that needs to happen. Because serious athletes don't need that. It's similar to serious musicians and entrepreneurs. They don't need that. You know what they want? They wanna grow, they wanna change, they wanna win, they wanna perform. And the same 
is true in your spiritual life, if you want to be healthy, confession is something that you're constantly going back to God with. You don't need everything couched and a bunch of nice things to be able to talk about the difficult things or the dark things. Confession changes us. And so where does confession happen? Well, confession is something that's both private and something that's communal. So this private uh, idea is this is really just your prayer life. This is your thoughts with God, your time with God. This becomes a, a, a daily part of our prayer life. It's not a spiritual hoop we jump through. It's not some disciplinary action, but it, what it is is it's a path to life. Like it's, it's meant to liberate and it's meant to change us. And so we go into prayer with the posture that David shared in Psalm 139 where he said, search me, God, and sh- know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. See, this is the posture of someone who continually lives in a life of con- uh, a relationship of confession with God. So confession happens privately with him, but confession also and must happen in community. Now, not everyone but safe community that's moving in the same direction. And this is one of the hardest things for us. I don't know if it's an American thing or a Western thing, but it's very, very hard for people to to admit their weakness, their struggles. It's just natural for us to keep things secret and to present together a put-together life. Richard Foster describes it this way, why confession is so hard between us and others. He says, confession is a difficult discipline, or you can think of it as a pathway for us because we, we all too often view believing, the believing community as a fellowship of saints before we see it as a fellowship of sinners. We feel that everyone else has advanced so far into holiness that we are isolated and alone in our sin. We cannot bear to reveal our failures and shortcomings to others. We imagine that we are the only ones who have not stepped Onto the high road of heaven. Therefore, we hide ourselves from one another and live in veiled lies of hypocrisy. But if we know that the people of God are first fellow, the people of God are first a fellowship of sinners, we are freed to hear the unconditional call of God's love and to confess our needs openly before our brothers and sisters. We are know that we know that we are not alone in our sin. The fear and the pride that cling to us like barnacles cling to others as well. We are sinners together. In acts of mutual confession, we release the power that heals. Our humanity is no longer denied, but transformed. And that is so well said. There is power in a confessing community. That's what I observed that day at that AA meeting. It would have been amazing for a person just to stand up and confess just to God, I mean, that's an amazing, courageous thing. But the fact that the confession was occurring person after person with strangers in the room was powerful. Now, who you confess to actually matters because you want to be confessing to someone that actually understands the light and the truth. A few years ago, I had a guy set up a meeting with me, and I I didn't really know him, but he was a friend of someone that was a part of our church. And uh, so this friend of mine that was a part of Cornerstone said to his buddy, you, need, you should talk to Brian. So we sit down and the friend begins to tell me that he's been having an affair and cheating on his wife for years. And I, I asked him, I said, well, what do you think about that? And he said, I believe it's wrong and I would want it to end. I haven't ended it yet, but I'd like to have a healthy, loving relationship with my wife. 
And I'm just telling you. And I said, well, what, who else have you told? And he said, I've told some other friends. And I asked, what advice are they giving you as you've confessed this to some of your other friends? And he said that his friends had told him to keep it a secret. So this kind of thing happens. You can't tell your wife it will crush her too much. She'll never forgive you. See, that's confession to those that don't understand the way flourishing works. And I looked at him and I said, if you really do care about your wife and you care about your marriage and you hold any hope that your marriage might be redeemed, restored, you have to tell her the truth. You have to come clean. And not only do you have to come clean, but you need to end the relationship with this other person right now because there is no intimacy when there is someone else involved. There is no intimacy without fidelity. And so you choose your friends who you confess to carefully. You want to hear the truth from them. Because what happens is really what they're doing is they're standing in place of Jesus. They're there to receive you with grace and mercy, but to also keep you and move you back onto the path of flourishing. So in the same way that love is more an indicator of walking in the light and being in fellowship with Jesus, confession and openness and honesty with God and one another is more of an indicator of walking in the light and fellowship with Jesus than perfection or a sinless life. To walk in the light means to live a life of love, means to live a life of confession. That's what Jesus offers. Now one last thing as I close. So here's a question. How can a person really do this? How can a person find the courage to take the risk to share this with another person or even with God? The world is so unsafe. It's so full of judgment. I mean, even our own minds are unsafe the way we judge ourselves. Is there a safe one? Is there a safe place that we can bring all of these things? And I think that's how John wanted to end this thought here. When you get to chapter two, verse one, he says this, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. It's certainly better for us to stay on the path and to never rebel and to have our heart changed. But if anyone does, he almost could have said, but when you do, if anyone does sin or when you do sin, we have an advocate, the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for our sins, but the sins of the world. What this is saying is you no longer have to pay for that. You no longer have to carry that. But he goes further than that. This word advocate is something important. Right now, Jesus is busy. Long ago, he left the earth. He sent the spirit to be with us. But right now, you know where he's at? He's in heaven, face to face with the father. Or you could think of it, he's right to the father's right hand side. The place of honor. So the father's there, Jesus is to his right. And what is it that Jesus does all day long? But he looks upon us and he advocates about who we are that we belong to him, that we're sons and daughters to the Father. And not to an angry Father, Father who loves us. But Jesus is there advocating for you all day long. You know what he's doing? He's creating the safest environment for you to be you. He's creating the safest environment for me to be me with my good and my bad. My strengths and my weaknesses. My virtue and my sin. There's nothing that you will ever share with him, share with another person, do in your life that will cause him to blink or look away. 
If you have said yes to Jesus, you are now at his right hand, we're told in Ephesians. You've been saved and seated with him in heavenly places. And you know what you hear him doing all day long? Advocating for you. You know why I think those wrestlers on our team can sit and listen to hard feedback? They can be coached hard. You know why? Because they know their coach loves them. They know that I'm for them that I want the same things that they want. But above all, they know that I'm gonna be there, that I love them no matter what happens. That's why they can hear those things. This is why we can confess to the Lord. This is why we can have God share with us the things that we're struggling with that we, then we repeat back as a confession to him. It's that safe. Your home is with him and there's nothing to hide. And so simply cornerstone, I just want you to hear this. Sin is a problem. But grace is an incredible answer that overcomes those things. And the way that we walk in grace, the way that we walk in life is we share the love of God with others and we live a life of confession. And so as I close, I wanna invite you to go to the quiet place of prayer. And I wanna close today by reading a prayer from Psalm 32. So I just want you to listen to it. I'll read it through once. But this is a prayer of confession. This is a prayer about confession. And I want to invite you to receive the gift of confession today. Put your own words to what you're hearing. Add your words to the words of the psalmist. And let God bring liberation and change into your life. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and whose spirit is in no deceit. When I keep silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. And then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. For you, God, are our hiding place and you will protect them from trouble and sound them or surround them with songs of deliverance. Father, thank you for the words of the scripture. This week, in our conversations, may they be filled with confession. In our time of prayer and walking and being with you alone, may that conversation be filled with confession. We love you and we thank you that there's nothing we can do to separate us, ourselves from you. In fact, our sin is a pathway to experience more and more of your grace and love and forgiveness in our lives. We thank you for how you work. It's amazing. May it be true of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.